Good morning. Good to have you. My name is Travis, and um, and the weeks that I've been up here on Sunday mornings, we've been traversing through the book of Ezra. Say Ezra. 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 And um, and the book of Ezra is, talks about um, the Jews, the Jewish nation, uh, tribes of Judah, Benjamin, coming out of captivity, out of Babylon, where they'd been captives for seventy years, and traversing back to the land of Israel, back to uh, the region of Ju- Judea, Judah. And, um, and Jerusalem, and looking to rebuild their temple. And um, it's a big moment. We've been talking about um, a few things. Here's a recap. And if you have uh, notes, there should be notes uh, on your chair next to you. If you're watching online, these are downloadable. I'll help you track with us this morning. And um, today's talk is, is entitled, Under Attack. And that's chapter four. We're gonna get there in a minute. Here's a review for you. Um, in the first couple weeks of this series, we talked about God having sure plans. And, and when we read, we can read in the prophets that God had plans for hundreds of years and thousands of years later, and he, and he speaks to us through the prophets and tells us exactly what his plans are and how it's going to come about and when it's going to happen, and then it happens. And, and God's plans are, are foolproof, um, and they're available for people of faith to walk in. And, um, and so he has sure plans, and when people have humble hearts before God and they're seeking God, God will stir their hearts and he'll stir a passion in their heart for something or someone or a people group or an endeavor um, so, so as to make himself known or his kingdom ways known or his justice felt or his compassion shared. And so we've been hanging out on that the past few months of God stir a passion in my heart. Put some strong desire inside of me, some thoughts in my head that I really haven't thought of before that are for your kingdom and for your purposes. Give me the desire and the strength to do what you've created me to do and the plans that you have for me to fulfill. And um, we each have a part to play. We're all a little different. And, uh, and we all have different circles of influence and different skill sets. And, and God made us that way, and that's on purpose. And he has a special and noble and important and rewarding plan for each one of us that only we can fulfill. We talked about embracing our location. A lot of times we're quick to jump out or to look for greener grass, but, but to embrace maybe the circles of influence that God has put us in or, or where we're at or, or even our job or our area or our geographical location Instead of always looking for something better, not that we should be closed to new opportunities, but it's just too easy to, um, to jump ship. And God may be desiring to stir passion in us and then for us to be diligent in certain areas. And exemplifying leadership by example. Uh, embarking despite fear, that was a big topic one week. And all these examples in scripture of men and women of faith, afraid, but stepping out in faith and obedience anyway to that which God has called them to. A big moment was um, esteeming holiness. And we sometimes we think, and, or we could be prone to think of, oh, a little compromise, it doesn't matter. Um, not a big deal. Uh, so what if it's not exactly what God wants me to do or how he wants me to do it? I'm, I'm for the most part doing it. And, and we looked at so many examples. We're actually going to kind of review and go a little deeper on that today. Um, but the importance of esteeming holiness and doing things God's way. Yeah. 
and then enduring the naysayers. And just within their own um, group that went down, that was going back to Jerusalem, and they started to rebuild the temple, and someone saw the temple, oh, it's not as good as the old one. We remember, we were here 70 years ago. It's not, it's not the same. And, and so uh, having to endure some of that discouraging thought from, the, from inside the camp, and, uh, and yet keeping our eyes on, God, stir a passion in me. Help me to be diligent to the mission and the focus that you put on my heart for your glory. And so that's kind of where we've been. And today... Um, under attack. So they get there, they're building, and now external opposition comes. And isn't this the case? When we set out to be obedient to God, we seek, we seek his voice, we wait long enough to maybe hear from him, we're in the scriptures allowing the Holy Spirit to stir a passion in our heart or give us thoughts and help us to know how to serve him best in this life that we're given. And we set out to do it, and then we encounter resistance and opposition. And that is to be expected. And that is what happened to the Jews when they went back and they started rebuilding the temple. And as we read Ezra 4 today, we're going to see five different ways that they were attacked. There's five specific ways that they, uh, the Jews uh, feel opposition and resistance. And then, even as we mention those, you know, as we talk through each one of those, throughout the Bible, we can, we can find out how we're to respond to those attacks and, and counter punches, if you will. A, a boxing term, you're in the ring boxing, and, and someone throws a high, a, a high hook or a jab at you, and guess what's open on them? This part right here. So if you're able to duck that punch and then come in from the right side... You can attack their midsection. And spiritually speaking, when we have opposition, God has ways for us to counter that opposition that will lead us to victory. Really cool to see this. And so let's start with Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It reads, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of captivity were building the temple of the Lord of Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses, and they said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for a chance to look at your word, which is perfect at reviving our souls. We thank you, God, that we have a chance to learn, not just from text, but by revelation of your Holy Spirit as we sit here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the weeks past where we've asked you to stir our hearts, Lord, and where we've sensed your presence and your leading in our life, Lord. And for those who have not yet taken that time or that moment or have sensed something, oh God, that they would persist in seeking you and making themselves available to you, Lord. Lord, I thank you, Lord. What does it, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Oh God, there's so much purpose in living for you. 
so much reward in living for what matters and having the right priorities and perspectives. And so, God, we worship you. And as that song we sing, we bow before your throne, Lord. And we experience true fulfillment, Lord, when we are worshiping you and filled with your spirit and accomplishing that which you have set before us. We thank you for your great kingdom, Lord, that shines so bright and is coming and is here. We look forward to your return as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, they hear that, they see this going on. These are people um, in the area there. They are threatened by, they don't want the Israelites to come back, the Jewish people to come back. And so what do they do? They say, let us build with you, for we seek God as you do. We've sacrificed him. You know what this is called? If you're in the military, you may have heard this term, false flag. False flag. And what used to happen in the days of of sea war, and ships would come up and they'd be flying the opposition's flag. We're Americans. We're Americans. And then they get close to you and you see, oh, they're not Americans and they start shooting. And, and that's kind of what's going on right here, is there's a blind attack through feigned support. They offer goods and services to gain power and influence. They bribe and they spoil as means to either blackmail or manipulate or infiltrate. The objective is to intervene or take over a process or a system And the question comes, all of a sudden we're offered, there's some people that come and they offer support or energies or monetary support, uh, attention. And we have to be careful that we're not too quick to accept outside help. Why not? Why not, you know, more hands on deck, more resources, more participation. And this is, if you were here when we did chapter two, This is eerily similar to Ezra chapter 2. If you remember, and and here's a recap of that, Ezra chapter 2, there's all the people, about 50,000 people, making this journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And and with them are priests and Levites, and they're keeping track of people by their genealogies and verifying, are, are you a Jew and you actually belong to this territory? And were you a Levite and actually allowed to serve in the capacity of spiritual leadership for the Jewish people? And there were some people here, ones who came up, but they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. They sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till the priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. So we talked about that. Um, We talked about revival and restoration is halted when holiness is compromised. Talked about the age of grace. It does not demote holiness. It esteems it. It Never underestimate, uh, underestimate, devalue, mock, or belittle holiness. It says shortchanging holiness is never a shortcut. We gave a lot of examples of that throughout Scripture where people thought, we'll just compromise a little bit in this area. It's okay. Direct orders or commands or instructions that God gave his people on how to be or how to live or how to conduct something. 
and people would do it, oh, we're just gonna do it our own way, or it's more convenient, or it's more timely to do it another way, or to form unholy alliances, or depend upon someone other than God. And so the church needs to esteem holiness. And I think there's that that issue and that tension of wanting to relate to the world because we're called to love them and we're called to really help them know who God is and his character and so forth. But we have to be very careful that we're not in our relating to them compromising the holiness of God or saying that sin is okay. Sin's never okay. We don't say sin is okay. We say Jesus died for our sin. And so that's the esteeming of holiness. Here's an example. Um, King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat was known as a good king who loved God and, and feared the Lord, wanted to live for him, please him. And Ahab was kind of the opposite of that. And his wife was Jezebel. She's famous for, for infamous things. And, um, and, and King Ahab was going to go to war. He, he was mad about some enemy armies that were a threat to him, and he's going to go and, and fight them. And he asked Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, will you come with us? And Jehoshaphat said, yeah, my people are your people. I'm with you. I will fight with you in battle. Not a good move. It wasn't a good move to have that alliance with a king that did not respect or care anything about the things of God and who worshiped Baal and Asherah with his wife. And it's only by God's mercy that Jehoshaphat survived that. They were in the fight and the enemy was intent on killing Jehoshaphat and he was kind of set up almost and it looked like he was, King Ahab actually wanted it to appear that Jehoshaphat was him and he was kind of in hiding, fighting as a normal soldier. Jehoshaphat escapes and lives to see another day. Not good to align with unholy alliances. He didn't really learn his lesson, though. Ahab's son was um, Ahaziah. And we read in 2 Chronicles, look at this. 2 Chronicles 20, 35 through 37. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. He allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made ships in Ezion Geber. But Eliezer, the son of Daddava and Marisha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. And then the ships were wrecked so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. Tarshish. It's easy to see here when Jehoshaphat aligns himself. We read many other stories in the Bible where there's just kind of that lack of discernment in aligning with or partnering with or allowing an influence in because it's profitable. How do we counter false flag attacks? We esteem holiness. We esteem it. We do things God's way. We stop first and ask, oh God, is this your way? Is this what you've told us to do? Is this right? Is this honoring to you? Is this dependent upon you? Or am I trying to seek answers from and or support from other sources apart from you and or your people? 
Do not compromise with God's instructions, methods, morals, his timing, his ways. We don't rush when he says wait. We don't wait when he says go. The how, the whens, the whys. Do not rely on or use grace as a reason to engage in sin or to embrace unholy activities or alliances. Real love, genuine love, rejoices in the truth. That's 1 Corinthians 13. It rejoices in the truth. Real love rejoices in the truth. It doesn't rejoice in falseness. Partnering with the wicked, devaluing holiness. That's what it's doing. Partnering with the wicked is a long cut. It's wandering in the wilderness at best. It's not a shortcut. It's wasting time, resources, energy, reputation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, he's talking to the Corinthian church and the believers, and he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and I'll walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's our God and he's our king and we follow him and we do things his way and we defer to him every time. Verse 17, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God. It's so cool. I think we've become way too reliant upon and ignorant about, naive about partnerships with ungodly people. Application. God does not say, marry an unbeliever and then try to convert them. Although that might seem in in today's cultural Christianity, hey, that's a, that's a good idea. God says the opposite. He says, if they're an unbeliever, do not be unequally yoked. Stay separate. If you're already married to an unbeliever, that's a different story. And God says, stay with them and be faithful. God does not say it's fine if your best friend is an unbeliever. God says the opposite. If they're an unbeliever, do not be unequally yoked. 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good character. God does not say form close business partnerships with unbelievers. God says the opposite. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Ephesians 5, 11. I would guess to say that there's some tension already that some of you guys are feeling and thinking, this is a little legalistic or it's a little over the top. Bear with me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... As we go through this, I, I think that's good conviction. And I think that's something that God wants us to feel this morning. Um, but here, what happens when we partner in business with unbelievers? Some of you have done that. Some of us have done that. And if you do that, there's a different mission. You guys have different mission statements in life. Because God has a mission for you that you're to fulfill. They have a different mission. What that is can be a number of things, but it's not the same as what your mission is. Different operating system, different morals, different destiny. 
tension with decision-making. Highest priority, is it profit or is it morality? Is it revenge or is it forgiveness? Is it bribes or integrity, half-truths or honesty? Do we prioritize work or do we prioritize family? Thinking too, when we partner with unbelievers, we're funding, a lot of times we're funding immorality. We're funding wickedness. What do they do with their profit? Here's a clarifier. We do not shun or avoid unbelievers. That's not biblical. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. We're to love everybody. We're to show respect to all people. All people are created in the image of God. God created everybody. He loves everybody. He has a plan for everybody's life. We're to be salt and light to our communities. We're to engage with unbelievers in ways that would ultimately help them know God and his ways. That being said, and here's the distinction, we do not attempt to gain identity from or through unbelievers. We don't hang with them for just entertainment's sake, nor rely on them for support. And then just a note that we can certainly learn things from all people. God has given people great minds, He's great, given people great insight in a very variety of things, and we can learn from everybody. Uh, many things, including unbelievers, but we're to guard against sin. Unholy alliances must be very careful. Ungodly influences. And we see that in Ezra, they did that. They, they recognized that. They could have just said, hey, more hands, good. This is hard work. I don't like lifting all these stones, doing all this playing in the dirt and building this stuff. Absolutely come and help. That would be fantastic. But they said, no, we are to build for our God. We are to do this. Our people, and there's a set people to do a certain thing. Reason, and you know what? It's good they realized that because the very reason that Israel went astray in the first place, the reason they had to go into captivity was for a number of reasons, but really just this reason of continually compromising, continually looking at pagan nations and allowing them to influence them, intermarrying with them, uh, taking on their customs, taking on their gods, turning from the true God, and so when they went into the promised land initially, it was at such, in, such a point in time where the people that currently dwelt there in the land of Canaan, they were so wicked. They were wicked. They were so wicked. They were sacrificing their kids left and right uh, on altars. They were, it was, a, it was a filthy pagan nation. It was, I would think, as, as, as such as in Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood of Noah, where people's only intent all the time, their only thought always was only for evil. All the time. There was never even like moments like once a month or once a year when you kind of have a conviction or think, oh, maybe I should say sorry or maybe I should do something the right way. It was just, it was that corrupt yeah. is what it was looking like. And so that was the perfect timing. Remember, God has a plan. And when that timing came, and those people were so hard-hearted that they were only evil, he brought this Jewish people out of captivity, out of Egypt, and he brought them to the land of Canaan, and he said, destroy this wicked people. I'm giving you this land. This is the promised land. I'm judging this nation, and I'm giving you guys, and I'm going to work through you and show my grace and my character and my love to the world through you guys. And so they were supposed to wipe out this corruption and this iniquity and this, this sin and this wickedness, and they didn't. They started and they kind of, they, they did pretty good for a while, but they failed to wipe out the wicked nations. 
They allowed for sinful practices to remain, and in time, they were enticed and allured and influenced to compromise. Came back to bite them. In time, you know, they they were ruled by Moses and then Joshua and then a whole bunch of different um, judges. But after a while, they're like, ah, we want a king like the rest of the nations. That looks kind of glamorous to have a king. It's kind of cool to have a, you know, a, a, a manly king, and we want to have that, and we want to have that kind of an army and, and stuff. Well, the whole while, God had been using just Moses and prophets and judges and, and just his Ten Commandments and his leadership to destroy huge nations. And they come, they take the land, they settle there, and now they want to be like the other nations that they just destroyed. Give us a king. We want to be like all the other nations, the desire to look like or be like or be esteemed by other nations, First Samuel. They compromise in neglecting God's ways and instructions. There's a progression. It's putting up with sin, kind of put up with it, flirting with sin, engaging in sin, embracing sin, endorsing sin, and then they went into captivity. God had to allow them. Hey, warn them. He tried to get them. No, don't do that. Don't go that way. Don't make those decisions. They self-destructed, and God gave them over to their desires, and they were taken into captivity by the Babylonian army, the Syrian army, and then the Babylonian army. That was King Solomon's downfall. He took on foreign wives with their pagan gods, and it led his heart astray and away from God. So here's something. Here's a thought. The secular is offering us help every day. The world system and the world culture is offering us help and support every day to make our life easier and better. Every day through what's offered to us. And I tell you what, there are a lot of inventions and designs and gadgets that do make our life tremendously easier. But we are to be very careful about unholy alliances, entertainment choices. They say buy now, pay later opportunities that they offer us. They're there to help us, right? Entertainment choices, are those good for us? And expert facts and opinions, I put that in quotation marks, from subjective science studies and pop psychology communities. But even real needs like food, shelter, clothing, um, they can offer those and they're real needs and it's real help, but are we becoming conditioned and reliant upon ungodly systems and was it supposed to be that way? And I think right now we definitely find ourselves really linked in with secular. The church doesn't stand on its own at all. We're so dependent on the worldly system for where we get our food and our clothing and our shelter and everything else and the banks and everything. We're just very much reliant upon, not God directly, but a lot of other sources. And that's where we find ourselves. And we're somewhat enslaved. I'm enslaved. You and I are enslaved to a degree. It can get worse, and it can get better. Supporting the world system. What do we listen to, and where do we shop, and what do we subscribe to, and what do we support? The secular marketplace has done a great job offering gadgets and help and services while infiltrating and confiscating God's church. Question, are we along for the ride, or can we become maybe little by little, 
God-dependent, God-reliant. Maybe we can, well, let's say this first, draw a line in the sand. Just in light of that, and Ezra's people, and what they decided to do, they said no to a whole bunch of help and support and resources. But in doing so, they were building something that God wanted them to build and doing something God's way and how he wanted it to be done. What is God stirring in your heart as you hear his command to be separate from the world as it pertains to unholy alliances? And if you hear something or have some ideas or if God's spirit is speaking to you, you know, be intentional with that and email yourself. Write it down and spend some time deliberating. All right, we continue. Ezra 4, 4 through 5. So <clears throat> they responded well to that. They didn't get entangled with the unholy alliances. So then what happens? Here here's, comes the next attack. Ezra 4, 4 through 5. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. And they troubled them in building. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That is demoralization warfare. It's a process, psychological warfare, that can encourage opponents to retreat, surrender, defect, rather than defeating them in combat. And so they know they can't join them. They're not being let in to the ranks. They can't mess it up from within. So now it is just pouring on the discouragement, the troubling. And that just continued through a few kings for quite some time. Ongoing, ongoing. Demoralization warfare, discourage, threaten, intimidate. We don't agree with you. What you're doing is not worth it. It will not succeed. It's a waste of time and money. Ignorant at best, you're wrong. You're, you're harmful. It's actually harmful. It's wrong. It can get exhausting. Day in and day out, being demoralized. The pounding of bad news, the hopelessness, just wave after wave after wave. And there's a lot of people in the Bible that knew all what that was about. Job, just relentless demoralization. Satan, he likes to demoralize people. He accuses, he condemns, he sows seeds of doubt and fear, discouragement, just so much bad news, demoralization, demoralization. How long does it take to become demoralized to the point where you just stop or give up? I thought this was interesting. Ronald Reagan, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we'll spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was like, once like, in the United States where men were free. Yuri Bezmanov, KJB defector, says it takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. This is the minimum number of years required to educate one generation of students. The demoralization process in the United States is basically, basically completed already. That was in the 80s that he wrote that. Anyway, 
What is our counterattack when we are being wave after wave demoralized by the enemy? Whether it's people we know or in business or whether it's just the spiritual, which is very realistic and, and, and of our greatest danger, just that constant discouragement. Our counterattack, we've talked about this many times at Life Church, it's praise. It's praise. We encourage ourselves in the Lord. That's what we do. We put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Your spirit starts getting heavy. We praise the Lord. We open up our mouths and we praise him. I praise you, Jesus. I bless you, Lord. I trust in your name. I trust in your past. I trust in your presence. I trust in your promises. And we do that over and over again, even though the words coming out of our mouth aren't connecting. They're not agreeing with our mind, but we do it anyway. And we allow the spirit of God and his word to renew our minds and give our minds power and clarity as to what the truth is. So remember God's faithfulness in the past, his presence. Did they, well, they got some spelling errors there. Who wrote this thing? <laughs> Here's pres, what in the world? That's supposed to be his presence in the present and his promises for the future. He's fired. Our counterattack is praise, and that's what David did. Psalm 42, 5, why so downcast, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. That's what he told himself. He just told himself, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. It was cool when, when the waves were coming in even a couple years ago, and it was COVID, and it was mandates left and right, and there was lockdowns going on, there was political things, there was just a mess, and, and just so many waves and waves and waves. And I admired a guy who at that time said, let's praise the Lord like crazy. And it was this guy, it was, it was Sean Foyt. And he goes to Texas, and he goes to Nashville, and he's just going to every big city and he's hosting just huge praise and worship nights. And tons of people are coming. And then look at this. He comes to Madison. Right there. I don't like his shirt. It's a Packers shirt. But he's praising God. And I was there. And my family was there. And I thought, this is awesome. And, and all that discouragement, and that weight, and the heaviness put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And the, and the Holy Spirit will give us what we need. And so here, do, do you feel this morning, maybe this is the attack some of you are feeling. You're just feeling the demoralized warfare going on. And what are you going to do about it? You can sulk, you can give in, throw in the towel, and, and definitely we, we feel that. We can do what David did, put on the spirit of praise for the uh, garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Psalm 8.2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. That's an Old Testament verse. And when Jesus goes to quote it in the New Testament, and I was reminded of this on Monday night, some of the guys, we were talking about this. Monday night, our men's group, <clears throat> I'll do a side note since I'm on men's group. This fall, guys, we're going to do a study on the book of James uh, by Vince Miller. And uh, it's a five-week study. Got some study guides, it's 10 bucks. It's going to be fantastic. But it's all about just rising up and, and some of what we're talking about today, discomfort um, that we feel in how to just, as men, move through it. So Jesus in Matthew 21, 16, he's quoting this verse, but look what he does. 
Jesus said to them, yes, have you ever read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? He substitutes the word praise for strength. And he does that on purpose because he knows something that we need to know. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so we praise him in the good times. We praise him in the bad times, the hard times. And our soul is revived and our mind is renewed. We continue on Ezra 4, verses 6, um, and actually all the way through 16. Here's the next attack. These people, they wrote an accusation. They wrote this accusation to Azuerus, who is now the king in, in Persia, Azuerus. And they also wrote it to his successor, Artaxerxes. They were writing these letters continuously against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Let it be known to the king that the Jews are building the rebellious and evil city. They will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt, you will have no dominion beyond the river. What attack is this? This is a disinformation assault. Disinformation assault, it's lies and half-truths given to persuade a person or public's perception regarding another party. A clever form of this today is to label true information as disinformation. To undermine opponents and gain control of the narrative. Watch out for that. Who can accuse the other party of disinformation first? That's kind of a, a word that's used a lot these days. And it's, it's an assault. It's a, it's a warfare. Um, it's clever. We're not going to do this today, but here's, just, um, here's a list of the Persian kings, at least what a lot of um, historians believe it looked like, and there's a lot of archaeological evidence for this. There's a couple other ideas of, there's a lot of co-reigning going on, and, and so this list is, is tricky, um, but we might be talking about this at some point in time later in the series. Cyrus the Great, uh, Cambyses, Darius I, Xerxes is Azuerus, Artaxerxes, and then Man, they just, they kept naming them Joe Jr., Joe Jr., Jr., Joe Jr., 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 and uh, um, so they like those names. All right, back on track. Have you ever been lied about? That feels good, doesn't it? I love that. No, I do not love that. People misrepresenting you, your intentions, people assuming wrong motives in you. Has that ever happened where they assume wrong motives in you? Your motives are pure. You're trying to do something good, and they assume you're doing something for self, selfish reasons or for wrong. Or People straight up lying about you to bring you to ruin, your reputation under assault. Do you know anyone who it seems that their life mission is to destroy you? That's hard when you're being lied about. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but how do you respond when you are lied about? And one thing is you can lie about them and throw a water balloon in their face. Um, you could defend yourself, you know, publicly, and maybe you should. It's kind of give or take. I don't know if that works. Sometimes it just makes you look more guilty, like you're on the defensive. But maybe sometimes there's a time to defend yourself publicly if it's a public thing going on. But here's biblical counsel. If we're lied about, this is what... 
God's word tells us to do it. First Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If it's another believer, you know, if it's another believer, they should have the same values and moral code and, and same, um, they should look to God's word for how things are resolved. And so we should go to them and, and just one-on-one and tell them our perception of what's going on, what we've heard, and is that true? And try to work that out. And if it's not able to be worked out right there, we should take a respected person, hopefully maybe a person that's respected by both of you, and have them mediate so that they can hear in the, in the, in the presence of them. And then finally, if it's still not, if this person is continually that way and it's just, it's, um, they've gone off the handle, they're not, they're not yielding to the Holy Spirit or God's word on anything, and they want to continue with lies or any other type of thing, then it's something to make the, the, the leadership known about. So the leadership of the church and so forth. First uh, Peter 4.8 says, love covers a multitude of sin. A lot of times we can just, through grace, and maybe through winning them over, being kind to them. And, um, and, and that's been a lot of time, a lot of time that's the best way to go about it. You're, you're being kind to them, you're, doing, you're going out of your way to, to bless them. And all of a sudden they feel some regret or some, maybe I shouldn't be picking on this person as, as I am and, and dragging them through the mud as I am. Um, and other times they just keep doing it, keep dragging you. <clears throat> Romans twelve twenty do good to your enemies. That's along the same lines. Do good to those who persecute you. Um, so believers or unbelievers, unbelievers here, and commit them, commit the issue to the Lord. Give them to God. It's not my job to get vengeance. It's not my job to make things even. It's not even my job to defend myself. It's God's job to defend me. That's on him. So I don't have to worry about it and be striving. How do I save face and save my reputation? No, I just, God, I give that person to you. He's accountable to you. He's not accountable to me. I'm not going to judge him. You're going to judge. You're the judge. I commit him to you. I commit myself to you, God. You know how I feel. You know how this is churning in me and I don't, I don't know how to respond or what to do. I just, I commit myself to you, God. You're my defender. You're my advocate, my redeemer, my judge. You're my help in times of trouble. Lord, I just commit them to you. I commit this issue to you. I commit myself to you. And then we keep being diligent. Like God's given us a mission. He's given us a focus. We can't get detracted and distracted by some lies. Some lies about us. And now we leave the mission and we leave the good thing that God has for us, that we're doing and we're engaged, we leave it and we're just for months or days or years consumed by the mistruths. We don't have time for that. Right. I, commit them to, I commit them to you. I commit the issue to you. I commit myself to you, God. Back to your work. Back to your work, God. Bless me, Lord. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing your work, Lord. And being diligent, keeping focused on your mission, a lot of times, time and your track record serves to validate you over time. And people see and they know who you are and what your character is like. A lot of times. Ezra 4, here's the next one. Ezra 4, 17, 19 through 22. The king sent an answer. Okay, so they write lies half-truths of the people, their intentions. And the king sent this answer. It was found that in this city in former times has revolted against the kings in rebellion and sedition had been fostered in it. 
There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, customs were paid to them. Now give the command. Say command. command. Say command. 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 Give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? So they are shut down by a direct decree. The king makes a ruling. A direct decree is an authoritative law or command that intends to change the status quo of what is or isn't allowed. This is another form of attack came from an authorized person in position to say, you're done. Can't do it anymore. Some thoughts on decrees. Um, some thoughts on decrees. So when the, your business or when the government has rules and laws for you, here's some thoughts on that. Paul says in Romans 13, 1, says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So the good authorities, the bad authorities, God's the one that's allowed them, either put them in place and or allowed for them to be in place. And here's the thing. They're going to have to give an account to God for themselves. And they might choose to rule well and righteously or wickedly and oppressively. They're going to have to answer to God for that. But our job, if we're under the authority of someone and or we're benefiting from service to them, our job is to be subject to them. And as a general principle, Christians are to obey the laws of the land. We stop at stoplights. We pay taxes. We refrain from robbing businesses. You know, we, we, are, we should show <clears throat> our lifestyles should be really model, just really model good citizenship. And so then they want to have something against us. They have nothing against us because we're living above reproach. We're living obediently. And here's a warning to those of us that just have a rebellious spirit in us. Here's a warning to us. It is easy to justify a desire to disobey. It's, it's easy to use God as an excuse to do so. And here's an example that just, you know, we could really make, in any issue or anything that we're going through, any law that's given to us or put on us, we could, we could find a way through our, through our minds to justify disobeying it. Paul says not to do that. He says obey. Here's an example. Uh, Roman authorities used portions of the public tax money for erroneous and perverse things. Terrible things. Terrible things. And yet Jesus said, pay to Caesar what is due Caesar. Pay your taxes anyway. You're, you're, you know, you're not responsible for what he does with it. You know, he's responsible. He's going to have to answer to God. Each person will have to answer to God. But you're under, you know, the roads that you drive on, the law enforcement that's around you, you know, you still need to pay your taxes. And what they do with it, God will judge them for. But Jesus said, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Paul said in Romans 13, 6 through 7, for because of this you pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. A separate example, it was that of, Paul was writing, and he's, he was talking to some slaves, and they were, they were 
and in that culture, slavery was um, allowed. It was part of their system. And so many people were enslaved. And a lot of people, um, it, it's a little different from our understanding. We have a very, slavery in the United States is a very different, um, different idea. But a lot of people would even, it would almost be employment. So I will work for you for seven years. I will be your servant, slave, for seven years. And, and, and in, in return, I get housing and I get this much money. And at the end of seven years, I go free. So it's kind of indentured servant type thing. But he says, slaves, you know, just because you come to Christ and you understand the truth and you've experienced his love in your life, um, he says, continue to obey your slaves, even if you have a wicked slave. Says, what? Even a wicked slave? Yeah. You are God's example. You are God's ambassador. You let the love of Christ and your example minister to people and to them. So this is just, this warning one is, is just for us to pause before defying and resisting and so I wanted to hit that before I hit this one. <clears throat> Next slide, appeal to a higher court. If business or governmental law requires that an individual directly disobeys the laws or commands of God, such as embrace and endorse sinful behaviors and lifestyles, directly participate in deception, lying and or promoting false narratives, refrain from spreading the good news of God's kingdom, then we respectfully defy. And look at this, this is kind of fun. There's a lot of examples of this in the Bible. Um, here's one, Exodus 1, 17 through, 16 through 17. Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, see them and see them on their birth stools. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they saved all the male children alive. So that was a defiance of the direct edict. Amos 7, 12 through 13, Amaziah said to Amos, go, you seer, that means you prophet, flee to the land of Judah and eat, uh, there eat bread and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and its royal residence. And what does Amos do? But he responds to the king right as he, after he says that with more prophecy about the king himself and his family. Yeah. And it's not good, yeah. but it comes true. Yeah. So he defied. Daniel. Who can forget this one? Daniel 6, 7 through 10. All the governors of the kingdom have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish a decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. In public view, he did it. This is kind of cool because this is at the same time that in Ezra they're back and they're rebuilding the temple and they've gone back. This is just prior to that, Daniel's in Babylon. He never did return to Jerusalem, but he stayed in Babylon. He was an advisor to the kings. And right here he's defying an edict, direct decree. How about Peter and John before the courts? Acts 4, 18 through 19. So they called them. This is right after they, they through the power of, of Christ, um, God healed a blind man. And so he's blind from birth. They healed him. 
and they're brought into the courts, the same courts that had just had Jesus crucified, not like a month or two prior. And they called on them and they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But they obviously continued. How to defy. Discernment and tact necessary. If we are to defy decrees that are ungodly, how do we do it? And I think a great example is Daniel. Earlier, we talked about him uh, defying the prayer decree. But when he was first taken as a slave into Babylon, they, had, they set food before him that had been offered to idols and so forth. And, and he didn't go off the handle. He didn't speak irrespect, uh, disrespectfully. But he asked that, that him and his Hebrew, uh, his Jewish friends might eat only vegetables only fruits and vegetables instead of the meats that had been sacrificed to the idols because that's what they were supposed to do as Jews, the, the, the laws that God had given them. And so he respectfully asked, and he says, Get, let us do it for a time. And if you see us losing weight or becoming slower than the rest of these, uh, these um, people that were being groomed for positions and leadership in Babylon, then, 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 then so be it. But give us a chance to, to, to do this. And they allowed for him to do that. And you can read that story, but they really were superior. Daniel and his friends really rose in power and prominence. Colossians 4, 5 through 6, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Can we, def- can we defy, frankly and adamantly, and yet with grace? Can we do it out of a spirit of love, not spite? We're not reactionary, and we're not doing things out of spite. Our motivation is love. That's why we do, that's why we serve God. That's why we obey the Lord. That's why we even defy at times. It's because of love for God and for other people or for God's ways. It's not out of spite. We're not having an attitude with other people. We're not telling them off. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you see that on TV, people just telling people off or ripping people or calling people names, and that's not, the quite, that's not the right way to do it. We know that. Are you prepared to defy if necessary? And um, if there should be certain decrees that come from business or government or their other, uh, are we prepared to do that? Um, a cool thing, even before having to defy, we have a chance to vote on Tuesday. That's a cool thing. United States of America, we have some, still have some freedoms of voice, freedom to vote. And so we should do that. Last one here. We're not going to spend any time here. Ezra 4, uh, 23 through 24. Now a copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before these different people. And by force of arms made them to cease. Okay. So the work of the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. It was discontinued to the second year of King Darius. Number five is physical enforcement. Physical intervention, arrest, confinement, which stops your efforts and progress. Thankfully, we haven't had to encounter much of that here where we live, but people all around the world do face that, as we know. And if we did face that type of persecution, God would help us. He would give us the grace, additional graces to bear that. He's with us. He'd be with us. And we would be. Uh, when people are forced to stop uh, physical persecution, 
the Christians in the New Testament, when they faced that, they fleed Jerusalem. They carried the gospel to other cities and regions. The underground church started thriving. Paul's imprisonment gave him opportunity to write letters, start a prison ministry. Even in death, only God knows the impact and the influence of a life lived for him. And so we're going to just uh, skip a couple slides and go to um, when we started this series and as we've been going, we've been asking God to stir a passion in our hearts. And he's the one who gives us desire and power to accomplish the vision. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Pastor Bob was talking last week about rejoicing in everything. Rejoicing in everything. And so, <clears throat> I don't know where you're at this morning. If you stepped out even a few weeks ago or just, just ongoingly, you're trying to hear God's voice and respond to it, but you're facing opposition. Opposition of false flags or um, discouragement or lies about you or even decrees that's difficult in your jobs or place of business or their other. But here is a couple questions for us. Is this opposition new? Can I relate to any of these listed attacks? And then two, how might God want me to respond when facing these attacks? God, I thank you that we can take courage, Lord, and that we can be strengthened by your spirit, Lord, and we can overcome, Lord, the adversaries and the opponents and the resistance, Lord. By your spirit, Lord, and we can be filled with joy and peace even in the midst of the storm, God, and we can have some confidence inside of our hearts. Confidence, Lord, for each day, Lord. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence that you will do what you have planned to do and that you will come through and you will be true to your promises and to your beckonings of us. And, and so, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. It is so strong and so poignant, so relevant, Lord, to where we are right now today. God, continue to build us up, Lord, and may we trust in you and, and be about your business. I thank you, God, for this church, Lord, that is just continuing to give your word out and, and your people coming together here and encouraging one another and looking to live for you and learn your ways and know you better. Thank you, Lord, for our friends here. Thank you, Lord, for the school here, Lord. We have a school that's teaching people a biblical worldview. Children, Lord, we have it. We thank you, Lord, for that, for blessing that, Lord. Lord, we thank you for Christian and, and believers, Lord, in different sectors of work, Lord, that we're able to partner with and hire and, and work together with, Lord, with the same mission and vision and values and goals. And God, we ask you to continue to stir some passions in our heart, Lord, for what might be and what could be and how we are to live our lives and how we are to be an example. And Lord, over the next minute and 30 seconds, Lord, we open up our ears and hearts to hear from you. In Jesus' name.